has been trying to motivate the brethren to press forward, to run their race, and not to lose heart because of the persecutions and the difficulties that they're going to face, uh, that they are facing. If they're, they're, his worry about them is drawing back and not pressing forward, and the uh, adversity and the persecutions are things that could discourage them uh, in continuing. And really in this next section, I think he looks at these adversities in a very different way. He doesn't see them as this discouragement that, you know, is really hard to live with. He almost transforms them into something positive. So, uh, verses 4 through 11. You've not yet resisted to the penetrating God in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had early fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now it's interesting what he says in verse 4. When he says you've not yet resisted the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, what does he mean to the point of shedding blood? Yeah, you haven't been killed yet. And he's implying that the fact that they haven't been killed yet means what? Well, at least they've gotten off easy. You know, I mean, man, you've you've had it easy. Now, we know from chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, that they had endured a great conflict of sufferings, that they'd been made a public spectacle, that they'd had their property seized, but, well, they haven't even been killed yet. You know, they, they really, anything short of dying for the Lord is really just an act of mercy on God's part that he hasn't called upon us to pay the ultimate price and make the ultimate sacrifice. Because surely he could. Surely it would be okay if he did. You know, it would be reasonable if he did that. So, you know, that's that's an interesting way to look at that. And then, starting in verse 5, he looks at their sufferings in a whole different way. How does he see them? Discipline from the Lord? Yes. This reinterprets their circumstances. This is discipline from the Lord. And so how should they look at it? How do we see discipline? Sorrowful at the time. Yeah, it's 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 painful. <laughs> it is an act of love. It is an act of love. Why do parents discipline their children if they're good parents? Out of love. Sure. I mean, can you see? I mean, well, most of you aren't parents, but you can imagine. <laughs> um, you know, what would most be? Most of them have parents. Though. Yeah, you have. Do you do you have your parents exercise any discipline? Um, there's a lot of times when it would be easier not to. You know, it's kind of a headache. I mean, you know, you don't really enjoy even, I mean, I don't think it's a lot of fun even to verbally reprimand your children, much less physically administer punishment. And a lot of times it's not even convenient. You know, it'd be easier if you could just let it go. You know, and, and you see a lot of parents that do that. I mean, do you see parents that just sort of let their kids do whatever? You know parents like that, don't you? You ever wish you had parents like that? No, well, maybe you do. But, but if you've noticed those parents very carefully, why are those parents so nice to their kids that they don't discipline them at all? 
want to be bothered or don't want to look bad. Yeah. It's like they don't really care. You know, I mean, there's a boy in Brazil that I was talking to uh, this last trip. He's, um, I think he was 15, 14 or 15. And he's really quiet. And he's got a lot of difficulties. He, he was brought to the Lord just because he lived across the street from a church building. And he happened to start going over there to services. And one thing led to another. But he's living with his dad and his stepmom. And, and uh, he spent about like three or four days that I was in Porto Alegre with us. We, we just stay there. We, we sleep there at the church building. The guys do. And uh, so he just stayed with us. And so we were talking a little bit. And he finally kind of opened up to me and a little. And I said... Um, I said, does your dad know you're here? He said, yeah. I said, is that is that okay with him? He said, yeah. I said, can you pretty much do anything you want to? He said, yeah. I said, for how long have you had that much freedom to do anything you wanted to? He said, oh my God. I said, boy, I'm sorry. You know, and he understood what I meant by that. I mean, I think he saw it that way too. You know, he realized. He... he <laughs> He asked one of the brethren there that weekend how much they thought it would cost for him to get an apartment on his own. That apparently his dad had said that'd be okay and he'd help him pay for it. <laughs> uh, that's not what he, at least that's not what he was doing finally. He moved in with one of the brethren for a little while. But it's like, wow, can you imagine parents that didn't even care enough? Oh, whatever. You know, go wherever you want to. I don't really care. <laughs> well, you know, a parent who cares is concerned about the conduct of his children and will discipline them. I mean, will even spank them or, or, or punish them because he loves them, because he cares about them. That, that's the way this writer is looking at these sufferings and adversities and even the persecution that these Hebrew Christians were going through. He says it shows God loves you. It's a sign of God's approval, not of his disapproval. Um, so, I don't know. If we're a kid, what should we do with the discipline we get? Learn from it. Sure, learn from, grow by it. You know, let it help us. That's what we need to do with God's discipline. These things that happen, they've got a positive goal. We ought to let God accomplish what he's trying to do with the discipline he's doing of us. It's so much easier to, to take the suffering when we see it as discipline. When we see it as something God is um, working through to bless us. It's kind of like labor pains. Wouldn't they be horrible if there was no good result? They're easier to take, and women actually have been known to have second and third and fourth children, you know, and in some cases, you know, 10th and 11th, uh, because of the results, surely not because they enjoyed the pain. But once you think about the, the good result, then, then you're willing to go through the pain that it takes to get there. I mean, I'm glad that my parents disciplined me, you know. Well, I mean... I see that that was a good thing for me that they did. Uh, I surely wouldn't have wanted them just to sort of let me go and not care what I did. <laughs> Even though, um, you know, not all their discipline was always something that I enjoyed at the time. Comments and thoughts on uh, 4 through 6. It's a lot more difficult to recognize that at the time. When you're... I can remember growing up and, and envying the kids that did really? whatever they wanted to do. You know, and thinking, man, I wish I could you know, do that. Or some relatives that <laughs> were <laughs> <laughs> that way. But you, go, you see it, I mean, I can see it now. But when I was their age, I don't think I could. I don't know, do you see it, guys? Or do you see some people that you would kind of like to have their freedom? Well, yeah. That was a lot more so, like, when I was younger than I am now. Yeah, that's Not what I'd say. Or anything, but... <laughs> yeah. Well, I was a little slow learner. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I think by the time you, you guys is age, I mean, there may be some, I'm not saying that parents always discipline perfectly, and he's going to say that in a minute, so there may be some things that you'd think were, 
you wish you didn't have or whatever. But in general, I don't think we'd want to trade places with parents who just sort of let us go. And, okay, just do anything you want to. Okay. You know, and especially who would do that from a very young age. Wow. <laughs> that would, I mean, you would really feel like, and what I felt like when Gigi told me that, it's like, wow, nobody loves you. <laughs> that is so sad. Wow. <laughs> you know, just to think that, well, that, that's never good what I do. And uh, thankfully, our Heavenly Father does. And he really, um, he really makes the point that, you know, if they weren't God's son, God's sons, they wouldn't suffer. You know, they may think that all this suffering proves they're not God's children. He says it's just the opposite. If you didn't have the suffering, that would prove you weren't God's children because it means he didn't love you enough to discipline you. And, and he makes the, the point in verse 9, you know, you know what you did with your parents' discipline. You know, so why shouldn't we learn from and respond positively to our Heavenly Father's discipline? Because after all, in verse 10, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. You know, they were not always free of mistakes. Sometimes they made errors in their judgment about that. I don't know any parent who's perfect in discipline. I mean, most of us have even misdisciplined. There have been times when I thought my kid did something that I missed it, you know, uh, you, you know, or or over exaggerated because of how I felt at the moment, or whatever. I didn't give the appropriate punishment, or I was inconsistent in it. I mean, parents have problems in discipline; they're not perfect. God is, you know, His is perfect, always for our good, so that we may share in His holiness. How does God's discipline help us be holy? It humbles us. That's one thing, and that's a blessing to us for sure. It's always good when we're able to be humble. And, uh, you know, I've thought sometimes, wow, what it would be like if everything always was successful in my life. If there was, everything always just went smoothly. You know, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. You know, wow, that'd be that'd be really horrible, because it just makes you so prideful. What else does how else does God's discipline lead to holiness? Just correcting something that we're doing wrong, then obviously we're more holy than. We we were, if we, if we see it and recognize it. That's a good point. That's exactly right. Sometimes it may be connected with specific behaviors that are unholy, and uh, we can be thankful for his discipline. I mean, you know, what about when you suffer the consequences of your sins? Um, sometimes that's really painful, the guilt, and whatever else may go with it. You know, I mean, some sins have some really serious consequences with them. And I thought as a parent, think about this, you probably heard me say this, but or thought about it, but if, if, if you have children one day, you know, if you could take away all of their sensation of pain, would you? No. None of us who are parents would. Why not? Why wouldn't you do that? Through they learn. Well, yeah. Can you imagine how horrible it would be? I know we've got a man in the congregation. Well, I had a man in the congregation. He's died several years ago. But he, uh, he, uh, um, God, no, I don't remember who it was. It is a man that's still in the congregation. I don't remember who it was. That, uh, he has really pretty much no feeling in his feet. He's diabetic and got all the things. And, and he had like, I don't know, like an um, electric blanket or something or, or some kind of a heating device that actually he smelled his foot burning. He couldn't feel it. And, you know, hurt him badly. He's okay, you know, several years ago. But it's like, wow, that was terrible. I mean, if he'd had normal feeling in his feet long before it burned his skin to where he could smell it, he would have felt the pain. Now, pain's no fun. But pain actually is a real blessing. You kind of need that. And if, if our sins didn't have consequences, if they didn't hurt us, 
if they didn't have some things that really made life complicated for us, think about how easy it would be to commit them again. Sometimes it's a real blessing when it becomes really sticky because of my sins. Because it, it motivates me, I'm going to do that again. And that even motivates me, I don't really want to commit any sin again. I can see God's ways best. I think there's another way that discipline leads to holiness, John. Maybe it makes us more compassionate toward others. And, and certainly God is compassionate toward us. That's for sure. Man, we are so... Well, I don't know. I tend to be so lacking in compassion, so impatient when I've never gone through something. You know? And it's really a blessing in my attitude toward other people when I've gone through really hard things myself. Because it makes me, makes me more understanding. I can relate to it. That's a good point. What else? You know, think about this. If everything in our life were going really smoothly, how badly would we want to be holy? How much would we care? It's probably really a blessing when a lot of things in this life really blow up in our face because it makes us long to be with the Lord. It makes us see our need for God. I think just in general, it's a, it's a blessing when things are adverse. Do you wonder if we're always praying the right things? I mean, maybe, maybe we shouldn't have just a knee-jerk reaction you know, God, help everybody that we know get over their sicknesses. And help them not feel it. And help them, you know, not experience grief in this or that. Maybe we need that. I mean, you know, help help all the people who are unemployed and underemployed get jobs fast that they make a lot of money with. Maybe that's not the right thing. You know, maybe that would be, maybe we ought to be praying that there'd be more sickness and more, you know, Economic downturns. and I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think there may be times that, that God would see a greater blessing for us in the suffering than in the alleviation of the suffering. Comments and thoughts on that, Chris? You've heard the story about the, the, or the guy that was bitten by the snake and almost died. So he started attending more because of that. He became very religious. And the little boy, late that night, after her, you know, after he recovered and after he saw that he was attending, the little boy was praying. And the mom walked by and heard him. He says, Lord, please send more snakes. Send one to bite Uncle Bob. And send one to bite Aunt Judy. And send a great big one to bite Grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, you could see that. Well, I mean, there certainly are things that have hurt me that have helped me a lot. We sure don't know what, I don't think, I don't think we know what exactly God is trying to accomplish with each of the trials. But I've tried more lately to pray, Lord, I don't know what it is you're expecting this, but help us to see it, to learn from it, or, or whoever is going through the problem. Thank you for sending it. I know you have a purpose. Let Help us to see what it is. Help us to get through it and be stronger and, and love you more and serve you more because of it. I think that's very appropriate. I think it's even not bad to think as we go through it of some of the positive things God may be intending with that. Maybe maybe he's trying to get our attention and wants us to reflect on, you know, things that we should change or, you know, things that we should learn or whatever. And I don't know if I've said this here or not. It may not be about us whenever we face trials. It may be someone else's opportunity to comfort us or to help us or... Uh, or whatever, um, you know, it may be a test for us, but not really a, a, a trial for us. Good point. Something, something just to wait through and, and let someone else 
glorify God through their work in that issue that we have. That's a good point. That's a good way to look at that. That may be true. It may be that it's a greater opportunity for us to glorify God by remaining faithful and zealous for God in the midst of a very difficult circumstance. You know, you think about a Job or a Daniel or whatever, that we are more impressed by them when they went through difficulty and were willing to remain faithful. I mean, that, that actually causes us to be more impressed by the strength God gave them. So you can see a lot of good things he says that, you know, the discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who've been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You know, the discipline itself may not have seemed very peaceful, but it leads to the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So, don't be so discouraged about the adversity and the persecution the suffering. You haven't even died yet, for one thing. And for another thing, have you forgotten that God disciplines the sons he loves, let this lead you to holiness and the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Other thoughts or comments you have on uh, anything through 11? I never really looked at every form of trial as discipline. Is that what he's saying? Because if you refer back to chapter 10 and verse 32 to 34, I mean, they lost their property and they lost... Was that a form of discipline? Yeah, I think so. So it's not just punishment for when you do something. Like, that's how I know the connotation of my mind with the word discipline. Right. Like, punishing you when you do something wrong. But I think here, like, it's also meaning, like, just helping you grow and shape you. I agree. Yes. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. I mean, I think he's using this in the context, you know, even of the last part of chapter 11 and the first, like, 12, 3 and 4 and so forth, in the context of the sufferings that they were going through because they were Christians. I think he's seeing this as being disciplined. Um, I'm not sure every adversity would be disciplined. Yeah. For a wicked man, it may not be discipline at all. It may just be punishment. You know, God may not, he doesn't, they're not his sons, you know, they don't experience his love in the same way, so he may just be giving them what they deserve. But I think for a faithful Christian, the adversity we suffer, I mean, I think it's appropriate to look at all of that as, as discipline in one form or another, especially understanding that in the sense that Ariel say. <coughs> Thoughts? So when God sends adversity to us, we should thank Him and see that He loved us. Yes. Then it kind of goes to show how much He loved Christ, because all this adversity Christ had to suffer in His life. Yes, although I think, yeah, Christ is probably a different case. And maybe maybe I should, that, that's probably worth looking at. Maybe we should say not all disciplines adversity, or is this, not all adversity is discipline. Because Christ really, I think, was for us. That may go to the point that Anita mentioned. Maybe we should see that some of the purpose of this is also to serve others or to glorify God. That may that may be a better statement or a better way to look at some of that. But I think for Jesus, it was really the adversity he took on to be a blessing to us. Some I've heard people say some suffering is redemptive. You know, it, it's for the purpose of blessing others. So maybe, maybe we should say there's more than just the category of discipline. Good point. Karen Shearer would talk about her mother's condition late in her life, I think, as a, an opportunity for discipline for her. It's a, it's a, it's a way for teaching, instruction, um, development. We sure don't get anything out of these... Uh these adversities, if we just resent them, become bitter, and complain, and feel sorry for ourselves, and try to just kind of escape and not deal with them and so forth. That, that, what a waste of discipline if we respond that way. We fix them ourselves. That's right. Anita? Back to the Jesus and the discipline thing. He did learn obedience through his suffering, and I guess 
I mean, you, you expect him to be obedient anyway, but he learned to turn over his will to God and bow to God's will through his suffering. So I can kind of see that point. And also, I just think if we look for God in everything in our lives, um, whether it's good or, or suffering, or good suffering, <laughs> you know, whatever it happens to be, then it, it all becomes discipline. Well, I think we definitely need to look for God in everything. And I think a spiritually minded person sees God's hand constantly. And, and you know, he sees God working through events that he may not be the direct agent of. I mean, you think about how God would work through Satan entering Judas's heart to betray Jesus. Or the Joseph's brothers envying him and selling him into slavery. You know, God even using those things and his hand really being in those things. Not that God wanted them to be envious or he inspired Judas's greed. But that God's hand causes even those things to have a productive purpose for those who love God. Other thoughts and comments? Is this word discipline the same word that's used, that we've been using in our parenting class, meaning to twist into greatness? No, probably not, because you've probably been using it from Hebrew and the Old Testament, right? I think so. And this is, would be from Greek and the New Testament, so at least it wouldn't be the same word. Okay. What is What is that word? Do you remember? I, I don't know. I just know that we've used the definition a number of times, and I always thought it was kind of cool. I thought it was from Ephesians 6, though. Is it? It might have been. Do you know what word it is? No. I don't know if he even pronounced it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think he did. Okay. All right. I'm not sure then. All right, how about 12 to 17? <clears throat> <clears throat> Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single man. <coughs> for you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Um, there's some debate about 12 and 13. He's talking about body parts like hands and <coughs> knees and feet, and maybe some debate about what, what body those are parts of. He says, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. So, when he talks about the hands, the knees, the feet, do you know what he's talking about? What's... Two real schools of thought on this. Talking about individuals, possibly. I think so. So when he says to strengthen the hands that are weak, what would that be to do? Encourage someone. Yes, encourage those who are weaker. And, you know, kind of lift up the, the knees that are feeble. We, I think thinking of the church as a body and thinking about different members of the church. Thinking about, you know, different ones who have different uh, disabilities, so to speak, spiritually. And so you try to help each other and you try to, to you know, lift each other up and, and encourage and strengthen each other. And, and, and I think perhaps 
you know, making straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, I think is the idea, make sure you go in a straight, righteous line so that people who are following you are not going to step on a hole and twist their ankle. Because think about how maybe you can flirt around with some dangerous situations and maybe you'll still come out okay. But a weaker brother with weaker joints who tries to follow you on your crooked course may end up getting tripped up and fall and hurt himself badly because, you know, he's not able to handle some of the, you know, flirtation with temptation that you're doing. So you make sure you're really, your life is really straight and righteous so you don't hurt the brother who's following along behind you. So in my interpretation, this is sort of viewing our relationship with each other in the church. And we need to strengthen... We need to lift up. We need to make sure our life is straight so that nobody else following us is tripped up by it. What do you think? Got a comment or thought on 12 or 13? Well, making straight paths for your feet would perhaps also fit the living, the disciplined life that we just talk about, talked about as well. And thus, like you say, the <coughs> Those that are looking at you don't get tripped up. That's good. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we're just too mm, inattentive and sort of careless about our own life. You know, we do some things that... Think about this in a physical illustration. Um, And, you know, us adults, you know, probably have messed up on this here, there, yonder. But, you know, like... um, your children, or maybe other young people watching you drive. And maybe you're doing something that's really pretty, you know, uh, kind of um, risky. You can probably handle it. You know, you have. But it's probably not very, you know, smart. Probably wouldn't be what they teach in driving school or whatever. (laughs) And then, do you ever see your kids doing the same thing, and you're thinking, oh, I wish they hadn't seen me do that. You know, because I wasn't very, you know, I, I, I've handled it. I knew I got experience or whatever. But, well, if you can do it, I can do it. You know, and it's really probably not the safest procedure. Well, you know, I mean, driving is kind of important, but not as important as our spiritual life. Think about the analogy spiritually. You know, we get careless and sloppy and just do some things that are pretty... You know, they're not very smart. I mean, they, they're putting us in precarious positions. But, you know, we've got experience. We've got strength. We've got resilience. We, we manage to handle those things. But, but other young Christians looking at us trying to do the same thing. And, and, you know, they don't have the skill and experience we have. Think about what it may do to them when they see us and they try to imitate us. I think that's a pretty good lesson he's got there really for us. And I, I've seen that even spiritually sometimes where, you know, I realize, ah, you know, that probably wasn't a very good idea, especially when I see somebody imitate me and I realize, no, that's not good for them. And it makes me think, you know, I wasn't very responsible. You know, I was just kind of pushing my limits and doing something that really probably wasn't, probably wasn't a very good idea for me. And then they try to imitate that. And look what damage could be done. Other comments and thoughts on 12 and 13? <coughs> that makes me think of eating meat sacrificed to idols. I mean, that's that's what's coming to mind when you're talking about things that some people can do without a problem and which will lead others to do something that is wrong for them. Well, yeah, I'll tell you what I think is a practical illustration for us. What about, you know, some of the movies we watch, some of the TV we watch and things like that, that, you know, has got some pretty questionable things in it, but, you know, we're strong, you know, we can we can see some of that stuff, we don't really pay any attention, we kind of ignore it or whatever, and, you know, and, 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 and you know, we let it be known, ah, man, I think that's a great movie, you know, that was really good, maybe it is a good movie in terms of, you know, it had, you know, interesting parts or, you know, was 
well done or whatever. And you know, well, if if he can do, if he can watch it, I guess I can. You know, I mean, he did. You know, and I mean, I know. I mean, it was always hard with my kids. You know, we had a lot stricter standards than most of the Christian kids they were around, and you know, I mean. They were around kids that were even, I mean, decent kids, but they were doing things that we wouldn't let them do. And it was always difficult. But, you know, well, all these other parents let their kids do this. You know, it's like, well, yeah, I know, but <laughs> it's not a good thing. Uh, you know, just being more careful. Maybe, I mean, I, I wouldn't doubt that there may be some Christians who can watch some things that, you know, really, they just, you know, don't really think about it or whatever. That thing probably will be true. And maybe I can do that. Maybe some things I can sort of ignore. I mean, I'm, you know, 49 and happily married. And, you know, I mean, there's things I'm not going to pay attention to if I saw them. And, uh, but not everybody who follows me is going to be in the same situation. Or have the same weaknesses. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it may, that may not be a weak area for me, but I know it is for a lot of people. Other thoughts? What is the therefore in 12 referring back to? Oh, that's a good question. We're always supposed to ask what is therefore, aren't we? <laughs> um, well, I don't really know. So go all the way back to chapter 11. And chapter 12 starts with a therefore. And is this on another one? Or is it start of chapter 12? what we're supposed to do and therefore strengthen the hands that are weak. Or is it talking about like the fruit of discipline being the, you know, righteousness and so forth and therefore help each other grow to be that. Help, I don't know, that'd probably be what I'd think, but I don't know, I haven't thought about it. you think there was another interpretation of There is, that it would refer to your own body members in your own physical body. And so watch, <laughs> watch out, watch your little hands, what they do, your little knees, where they go, or whatever kind of stuff. You Be careful, little hands. Be careful, little knees. <laughs> where you crawl. <laughs> yeah, we may add a few verses to that, too. Yeah, that would be the other option that I know about. Here's the little limb. <laughs> if the, uh, you know, if those who are going through this period of discipline, if you know, that's a hard time in their life, then they might be those who are needing the yeah. strengthening and the, the uh, bolstering. That's true. We do need, we have a responsibility to help each other. We need to be sensitive to each other. We need to know our brethren, know who needs strengthening in what ways, and just be really actively involved in taking the initiative to help each other grow and deal with, you know, spiritual difficulties and all that. Well, I mean, in 14, you know, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification that we must have. You know, and, and the word pursue is strong. You know, chase it. <laughs> you know, go over those things. And um, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Again, I think he's dealing with our relationship with each other. You know, watch each other. Keep an eye on each other so that nobody gets off course. You know, you go back to 10, 24, and 25. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Well, here, you know, watch out that no one comes short of the grace of God. You know, help each other not fall short. Um, and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Bitterness is poison. You know, and help each other overcome that. And don't let anybody be like Esau. Well, what was wrong with Esau? Self for the moment. Exactly. What was he thinking about? His empty stomach. Exactly. I'm hungry. I need food. 
And so what did he give away for that? His birthright. Exactly. What did the birthright mean? Double portion of everything that the father had. Now tell me. In this period of time, well, really all all through there, but but I mean, did Isaac have anything to speak of? Financially, materially. Yeah, he had quite a bit of stuff if you start looking at it. I mean, flocks and herds and you know, they're fighting over those wells and one thing or another. I mean, Isaac was a wealthy man. You know, uh, I mean, wow. Basically, when Esau sold his birthright, he was selling a third of the inheritance. Now Jacob gets two-thirds, he gets one-third. Now tell me, do you suppose that a third of the inheritance was worth about what a pot of stew's worth? Or a bowl of stew, or whatever he got out of it. That was stupid. I mean, wow. I mean, he could have inherited enough animals to make hot telling how many pots of stew. And, and he gives that up. It was just a very short-sighted thing. For Esau, one bowl of stew now is worth more than all those future possible blessings. He's willing to give up the future, sacrifice the future on the altar of the immediate and what he wants for right now. Now, you look at 1223. We are the church of the firstborn ones. We are the ones who are the firstborn who... Who, who, who received the inheritance. We are the ones who had those privileges. Are we going to sacrifice our being God's firstborn for immediate self-gratification now? And I think you can really see what he's saying. In that. Um, and it's exactly what we do. How many times are we willing to do something that makes me happy right now and sacrifice my relationship with God and sacrifice how I'm going to feel in 10 minutes. You know, to get what, you know, satisfies my immediate craving. We are so short-sighted. It is, you know, and you see an Esau, that was stupid. That was ridiculous. And he's like, well, I'm going to my brother. I'm going to do me if I starve to death. Right! You know, he's starving to death. I don't buy that. You ever, you ever told your parents, I just starved? Well, we don't have a clue. <laughs> I mean, Esau had been out on a hunt. He probably was hungry. He's probably really hungry. But he'll live. But he's just thinking about, you know, I want this. I'll give anything. And, and so many times, we will make choices based upon what will make us feel better in the next 10 seconds, even though it'll make us feel worse tomorrow and lose our soul eternally. It's just so, so ridiculous. I think this is an excellent, excellent lesson for us. What are your thoughts and comments as we go through these? struggle. You know, even just in terms of how you use your time. It's such a challenge to use it in a way that will help you instead of just the empty stupidity that I think I want right now. It's amazing. And people are doing it constantly in their relationship with God. You know, I mean, you've got that that basic idea. Several passages in the Bible. I'm thinking about, like Second Peter one nine. He who lacks these qualities is blind or short sighted. You know, he can't see past the end of his nose. All he can see is right now. 
We want to feel good. We so much give in to how we feel. We sacrifice principle to feeling. You know, to the way we feel better. Who cares how we feel? You know, it's so much more important what we are than what how we feel. But we are in the age where feelings is are king. That, that, that's all that matters. Just feel good. never looked at or I don't really see Esau's trading physical property as something that made him immoral or godless. Yeah. I guess I've always looked at it more despising the inheritance the I don't know the I don't know what you call it more of the Maybe the line of inheritance rather than the physical things. You know, when you think about God, obviously isn't he, He's an example. You you can look at that as an example, but it says here that don't be immoral or godless like Esau. But I don't see Esau giving up per property as making him immoral or godless. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And there's some debate about all that. In fact, I think there's some translational differences. Who's got something else? Everybody got something other than me. New American Standard on this. Why is this worldly minded? Yeah, that's New New Jerusalem. Yeah. Anybody got the NIV or the ESV or? The ESV and it says unholy. Godless or unholy? Just unholy. It doesn't even use the two. It says sexually immoral. Okay, sexually immoral. Immoral or unholy. Yeah, I don't know if there's a debate about that. Uh, and maybe, especially the question of sexually immoral, <coughs> is it possible that they're broadening that out and thinking about some other things about Esau and not just selling the birthright? I think that might be a question mark. Remember, he married some women he shouldn't. It, it, I get the impression that by despising the birthright, in a way, uh, despised God or, or uh, you know, in some way... He was despising being part of the chosen line. That, yeah, that's kind of the impression that he was. Uh... Yeah, I, I don't have a great answer on that. That is a debated issue, but I, it's been a while since I've looked at that. So. Well, couldn't it be also read like, okay, Esau is an immoral or godless person <laughs> who sold his own birthright for a single meal. That's just kind of another description of him, not in connection with why he's immoral or godless? Right. Yeah. I think that may be the case, especially with immoral. The godless can mean just, you know, profane or worldly-minded, I think, where he was, you know, he was trivializing something a lot more valuable. <coughs> uh, he's, he's definitely, in the part of him selling the birthright, he's using Esau's putting immediate physical desires ahead of much greater future physical blessings as kind of a parallel to our immediate desires versus our greater future spiritual blessings. Now he makes the point in 17. How did Esau feel after that? Changed his mind. Yeah. What did he want? The blessing. However rejected. It's too late. And it goes back to the point that we make throughout Hebrews of the finality of our choices. He could not get the decision changed. He couldn't reverse the consequences. Look at 3.19. You know, talking about the wilderness generation. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. They couldn't turn around and they tried to. Remember that? They tried to turn around and, oh, we'll go now. It's too late. They couldn't go in there. Or you think about chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, especially verse 6, then have fallen away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. You know, it becomes too late to change. Or like 1026, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. I mean, one of the things that he's tried to point out is there's a point of no return. You can go to the point where you can't get it changed. I mean, Esau, well, I mean, after he'd done that, he'd have loved to, I don't know, somehow reverse that decision back. He couldn't do it. And 
Jewel, I mean, just think, wow. And just, this is such, such a horrible thought to think about. That, you know, five minutes after we die, you wonder, will there be some things we wish, oh, if I could just take that back. Man, wow. You can put me back there. I'll, I'd, I'd never do that this time. You know, I'd make my choices differently. There's no opportunity for that. You know, once you die, there's nothing you'll ever, ever do from now on out that'll change your eternal destiny. Nothing. <laughs> no matter how much sorry you are, no matter how much then you change, there's nothing you can do. This is the finality of that. It's really a serious matter. And, you know, Esau, I mean, he saw it for it with tears. <laughs> it was too late. So, I mean, there's kind of a really horrifying, frightening tone to that. So Esau becomes kind of your anti-hero of faith. You know, you've got the faith chapter in chapter 11, and then <coughs> chapter 12, you've got Esau, the other side of that coin. You know, who wasn't looking at the unseen, he was looking at the immediate thing he could see. Great lesson for us. Other comments and thoughts? All right, 18 to 24. We've not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, into the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words that sound <coughs> perhaps that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches this mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. It's an interesting section, a little hard for me to be sure about what he's saying. Now, he's clearly contrasting two mountains. What are they? Sinai with Zion. Now, Mount Sinai, he's thinking about what event? Yes, and what was that like? Terrible. Scary, slightly frightening. Yeah, whoa. And that experience on Mount Sinai, how did it affect the people? They didn't want to be near it. Yes, that's exactly right. It frightened them, and it showed the immense distance between them and the Lord. That they could not come close to God. You know, they, they feared. Um, to to come close to God, um, because of all of those signs and all of the things, the terrible things God did. But now in Christ, verse twenty-two to twenty-four, we've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, and uh, probably best translated as in the margin, to myriads of angels in festive gathering, and to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, but it doesn't mean, make a lot of difference, and to God, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, and to the sprinkled blood. Wow! Look at all we have come to. The thing in Hebrews is that we can draw near. The barrier is removed. We come close. You know, and I'm not Sinai, it's the distance, it's the terror. In Christ, the barriers are removed. And we come right there to God and to His dwelling. Wow. That's amazing. Such a contrast. What do you think about that? It's not scary. It's not uh, discouraging. It's very uh, welcoming and receptive, and it's uh, it's, it's like what 
Yeah, that's that's what I want. Amen. It's quite a pep talk. And the whole book is, I think, meant to be an encouragement and a pep talk and a warning at some points. But, you know, when I read this and I think, wow, I remember this. Yeah. That's very encouraging. Amen. It is. I think it. We need to be encouraged by that. I, wow, it's amazing what we've what we've come to. It, it's amazing the blessings God gives us, and and I think the greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. Once we see what God has done for us, we ought to seek to give ourselves to Him. I mean, wow, and just to be gra- grateful to Him, and and to serve Him. I I, I like, and I think maybe this kind of. Um, underscores the contrast in verse 24 that we've come to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel now the sprinkled blood is the blood of who? Jesus Jesus' blood speaks better than the blood of Abel that's an interesting way to put that remember what Abel's blood spoke out from the ground for justice justice, vengeance and Christ's blood speaks what forgiveness isn't that a contrast you know wow the unjust death of Jesus did not lead God to seek vengeance he's going to put an end to all these people but Jesus to cry out, Father, forgive them. His blood speaks forgiveness. Abel's blood speaks justice and vengeance. You see how much we have. Another example similar to being the priest and being inside the veil. Just another way to say a similar I agree. You just, don't you see how much a book like this just sort of interweaves itself together? I mean, this theme is really carried through the whole thing. You know, this is the book about taking the barriers away and drawing near to God. And why would you ever throw that away? Why would you leave Mount Zion and go back to Mount Sinai? <laughs> would you look at it that way? Why would they ever think about leaving Christianity and go back into Judaism? Wow! You have so much! So much closeness to go back to so much distance. There's no logic to that. Should there be anything frightening about Mount Zion? (coughs) Or maybe not frightening, but a little bit intimidating? Well, it surely would be. I mean, to think about being in the presence of God, being on God's mountain in God's city, with God's angels and God's people. But I think through what Jesus has done, He is giving us a different perspective on that. It reminds me, in answer to that, really of like 4.16 Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Or, um, you know, 10.22 Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. I mean, that what he's really saying is that we can have boldness. You wouldn't think you could. You know, but but we can through Christ. So you know, like there's another verse somewhere in through there uh, that uh, may t- say about the same thing. Um, but but I, I think I think he's really presenting this that we can have confidence and assurance, and and that really, I mean. Through Jesus' blood, I think he's saying we don't have to feel so, you know, cringing and just drawing back and hiding and 
you know, not wanting to show our face before God and just feeling just really totally out of place and scared to be there and all that. <clears throat> I think by the grace of God, by the forgiveness of Jesus, wow, we can come right to Him. That is really amazing. You know, if you really think about what we're coming to, wow, I mean, that's, that's amazing. He's a loving father. He just compared him with our earthly fathers who discipline us because they love us, and God is so much greater than that. So again, another picture of, of one that you have confidence and, and uh, assurance as you come to him. I do think that is key to our life in Christ. I think we need the hope, confidence, assurance to live the kind of life God really wants us to live. Uh, I think about Galatians 5, um, where they were trying to go back to the law. And in 5.16, I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. When we walk by the Spirit, we're motivated to live for God. We don't do the fleshly things. And yet we can live with confidence and boldness. We're, we, we're called to freedom, verse 13. You know, we're called to love. We're called to walk by the Spirit. And it's a confident, bold walk that's free from the flesh because we love God. And we, we seek Him. I remember reading something. I don't remember exactly how this was, but I thought it helped me. That, you know, to the, to the, the Judaizing teacher, there's two, there's two ways. There's the law that's always condemning you and always putting you down and always making you realize how bad you are and how unworthy you are and just constantly... You know, constant demands, constant rules. Or, there's the flesh. Just self-indulgent, corrupt, decadent hedonism. That's all he saw. I think Christ shows the third way, the better way. The way of love, of the spirit, of, of, of life, of hope. It is a way. That avoids the fleshly indulgence. But it is, it, it is actually more successful in producing dedication and purity than, than the legalism because that is so paralyzing. And you feel so unworthy and so helpless and so hopeless. And I remember the illustration that for some people who are more legalistically minded and who have not really come to the assurance and confidence and hope in Christ that they view going through their life in the Lord as going through a field filled with landmines. They're afraid to walk. They can't, they, they're, they're scared to make any move because what if I get it wrong? You know, this may not be the right thing. And that Jesus frees us through his forgiveness and his grace to, to grow, to walk, to pursue Him, to, to be more confident and more hopeful. Now, if we turn that into a license for the flesh, Jude would say, we've abused the grace of God, and that's not what he meant to do. He didn't mean that in the sense that I say, ah, well, I can go ahead and sin, and it won't make any difference. We don't understand the way of love, the way of the Spirit, the way of the boldness that we have before God, if we think of it that way. But, but I do think that all of this is really, you know, this bold, confident access, this seeing ourselves as coming into God's presence and not having to just feel so horrible about ourselves we try to just hide in the corner. I think that really helps us live the kind of life God wants us to live. Comments and thoughts? That is very complex, though, um, as you deal with the intricacies of, of every day. 
it's taken me a long time to get a glimpse of that. I, I, yeah, it's much easier for me to say that than to live that. And it's helpful though to try to see it. I mean, it's helpful mm -hmm. to, I mean, it's, it, it's amazing to see Hebrews with the boldness and the assurance and the confidence that it gives you in the presence of the Lord. That is amazing. And I think we need it. Um, I spent some time recently with an older person who had an episode that she could have died. Oh, wow. She's a long-time Christian, but very legalistic. And after the episode was over with, she says, Wow, I almost did it, didn't I? I said, Well, yeah. She goes, I'm not ready to. I said, Why not? And she said she's not confident in her relationship with God after many, many years of being a Christian. She wasn't ready to die. And that was really sad for me. I agree. And I, I think that, you know, what you were saying about, you know, being able to rely on Jesus in sacrifice and all. I, I can't fathom that she can't. Well, you know, you see in those situations one of two things. I mean, sometimes people are just, they know they're not living right. They know they're hiding their sins. They know they're... There's sometimes when people, you know, say, I'm just not confident, I don't have hope and assurance, where, where if we really understood, we'd know what they were doing behind everybody's back that made them feel that way. Or, they don't understand the love and grace and forgiveness and mercy of God. You know, and think that, well, I just haven't quite earned enough points yet. You know, maybe if he lets me live a little longer, I can score a little higher on the test, and maybe I can make it in. You know, which is surely not the mindset that God wants us to have. And, you know, I, I mean, I can relate to that. Also, I realize the challenge of all of that. And, uh, you know, maybe you can kind of see a little better why there seemed to be so much struggle in the first century with those things. <laughs> you know, how much emphasis there is in the New Testament on the Judaizing teachers, and they're going back to the legal system of justification. Because, wow, that is a hard thing to grow out of. Other comments and thoughts? Well, that's probably a good stopping point. Let's talk for a minute about uh, <coughs> what we might study after Hebrews. Give me some ideas as to things you might like to study after Hebrews.